I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And we've chronicled a lot of negative 2020 milestones on the show. I don't know that there's another kind of 2020 milestone. Um, The arrival of COVID-19, the deaths of quarter million Americans, the protests over the murder of George Floyd, the first time a president has refused to accept a democratically run election. Is there some improvement on this list? Because... It makes me depressed about our whole entire past season. Well, I was just going to have a litany of complaints, but this year marks the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities when it comes to employment, transportation, public accommodations, communications, and access to government programs and services. And that's good if it is, as you will hear our guest talk about later, also an imperfect measure. And I'm 100% on board with that which is why today we're going to talk to two writers who have made important contributions to the way we talk and write about disability in America. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with Rebecca Tosig about her new book, Sitting Pretty, The View from My Ordinary Resilient Disabled Body. But first, we're thrilled to welcome poet and essayist Molly McCulley-Brown to the show. Brown is the author of the poetry collection The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, which won the 2016 Lexi Rudnitsky First Book Prize and was named a New York Times Critics Top Book of 2017, and the recent essay collection Places I've Taken My Body. With Susanna Nevison, she is also the co-author of the poetry collection In the Field Between Us. Brown has been the recipient of the Amy Lowell Poetry Traveling Scholarship, a United States Artist Fellowship a Civitella Renieri Foundation Fellowship, and the Jeff Baskin Writers Fellowship from the Oxford American. Her poems and essays have appeared or are forthcoming in the Paris Review, Tin House, Crazy Horse, The New York Times, Pleiades, The Yale Review, Blackbird, and elsewhere. She lives in Gambier, Ohio, and teaches at Kenyon College, where she is the Kenyon Review Fellow in Poetry. Molly, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We're very happy to have you here. Every semester, I have a couple of interns from the UMKC Creative Writing Program who work on the show, and they often they get to choose and craft an episode, and this is one of theirs. And uh, our intern, Mary Hen, was a huge fan of your work, and so I was very happy to have you on the show, as are we, but we have to give, we want to give her a shout out there. Your recent collection of essays, Places I've Taken My Body, explores the complexities of living with cerebral palsy and came out in June, just a few months after the pandemic hit. What has it been like releasing and promoting a book during that period of time? (laughs) You know, rough. I think anybody putting out a book right now um, would have that to say. It's hard to kind of um, both be in a moment when the sort of a lot of the typical avenues for for promoting work um, are hard access. You can't go to travel. You can't go give in-person readings. Um, And also when 
people's attention is uh, rightly and necessarily uh, often elsewhere, as is mine. We're all sort of focused on the, um, the really complicated realities of the world around us. Um, but I will say that I think it, it's also yielded some some opportunities that that wouldn't have come about otherwise. You know, the, the ability to 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 do these virtual readings that we've all sort of figured out how to do and have people tune in from from all over the country and all over the world is a really extraordinary thing. And um, as you mentioned, I teach at Kenyon College and I also work on the editorial staff of the Kenyon Review. Um, and one of the things that I've done over the last few months is. Um, launch with my co-fellow a series uh, that features writers who've published a book during the pandemic talking about um, a bookstore or another kind of literary community space that's been particularly important to them for selling their work. And we've been able to kind of put that, um, we publish one of those, two of those pieces every week. Um, and it's become a kind of catalog of, of uh, not only all these spaces that, that meant a lot to writers prior to the pandemic, but all the kind of inventive and miraculous ways that, that writers are, are finding to, to kind of get their work to readers during this time. And I've been really grateful for that. It's like a, uh, a reason to keep believing even when things feel dark. That sounds like a really nice series. Um, in addition to your own experiences and, and the others that you're talking about here, Places I've Taken My Body um, also considers the American eugenics movement, which is the crux of your poetry collection, the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, uh, especially the erasure poems in the latter half of the collection. Could you talk a little bit about your commitment to that subject in your writing? Yeah, so the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded um, was a real place um, that from the, the early uh, to mid-1900s was a, a government-run residential hospital um, that was one of the major hubs of the American eugenics movement in um, in the country. And what that means essentially is that thousands and thousands of people who either had or were perceived to have a variety of physical and intellectual disabilities were forcibly committed and forcibly sterilized there. Um, not only without their consent, but often without their knowledge, they were told that they were being given appendectomies um, and then were sterilized instead. And I grew up um, just a few miles from the grounds of the former colony, um, which is atypical in terms of these eugenicist institutions because until um, really only about six months ago, um, it remained an operational residential facility for adults um, and children with serious disabilities. Um, and it's a kind of strange place because like a lot of things in the rural South, um, it was built on an enormous amount of land. And so the when the original buildings um, from the colony fell into disrepair, instead of either moving out of them um, and knocking them down and building new buildings or um, rehabbing them so that they were up to code, the um, they just sort of built new buildings next door. So the, the institution is this really strange combination of um, a kind of ghost town of this eugenicist facility and, and a functioning hospital. Um, and I think growing up um, as a person with cerebral palsy, um, which is a, a pretty significant and visible physical disability, um, in the sort of immediate vicinity of this place, um, I, I kind of got interested in it um, as, a, as a young person in college and interested too in the um, the sort of reality of the fact that if I had been born in this same part of the world, the part of the world that is my home and means a lot to me, um, even 50 or 60 years earlier, um, I might have been a prime candidate to be a colony patient. Um, and I think as a part of my interest in that proximity um, and distance and also in um, the sort of ways in which literature can be used in service of social justice and as sort of historical and emotional record. Um, I got really interested in writing about the place. So as you point out, my, my first book is set entirely um, in the colony in the mid-1930s at the height of the sterilization movement. In the midst of this global crisis, the elderly population, as well as those with disabilities and minority groups, have been largely disregarded. Um, how do you connect with that current mindset and the treatment and treatment with things that have happened historically, like at this facility that you that you've written about. Well, so I think one of the things that was so interesting to me um, in doing research about the eugenics movement um, in America was the fact that was the the sort of degree to which it became clear that that two things were the case, and one uh, is of course that that uh, populations that were in any way marginalized. Um, 
suffered and and were were sterilized and penalized um, at much greater rates than than other parts of the population. So that means if you were um, impoverished, um, if you were undereducated, um, if you were a person of color, if you had a very visible disability um, or a very extreme disability, you were you were much more likely um, to be sterilized at one of these facilities than if you if you had uh, other particular kinds of privilege. Um, and I think we're seeing you know, in this pandemic that 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 is continuing to hold true, right? Um, pop, uh, populations that are, um, that already were marginalized, um, lacked resources, um, were suffering in other ways in our country are suffering to a greater degree during this pandemic. Um, and I think the other thing that that became really clear to me as I was was working on the first book and then continuing to think about um, eugenics in America uh, while writing my essay collection was that the one of the, there were two sort of primary forces that made um, the eugenics movement take off in the States in the way that it did. And one of them was this notion that the people who were being sterilized were somehow not complete and whole people, right? Um, that, that the reason that they were defective, the reason that it was better to sterilize them, the reason that it was better to shut them away and siphon them off from the community was that they didn't, they weren't in possession of whole and complete inner lives. They weren't adding value to the world. Um, and they were people who, um, as much as, as uh, eugenicist doctors would sometimes talk and pay lip service to the idea that this was done for their benefits, the idea was really that it was done for society's benefit, right? That that's, um, we were better off with without them. Um, and, and I think I, I've, I hear troubling echoes um, of that in the way that some people have talked about populations that are especially vulnerable in this pandemic, right? The idea of like, Oh yeah, well, it's you know the people who are dying from it are the people with pre-existing conditions. There are people who are there are people who are older. There are people who are less valuable. Well, like that that guy who's the state. Uh, no, he's the lieutenant governor of Texas who was like, well, you just gotta let the old people die. I'll, I'll go too. You know, didn't he say that? That was a bunch of people. It was a bunch of people. It was wild. Yeah, and it was, and not only that, it was this idea too. Did you hear the like? I think it was. I think it was this guy that you're talking about who said like. You know, I think most most grandparents would like want to sacrifice themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's their what he said. Right, his. this idea of like not only is it like an acceptable loss, but in fact, like people who are vulnerable in this way or or who need in this way um, are somehow burdensome and should be willing to sort of sacrifice their own existences as a way of sort of getting out of the getting out of the way. And that that's that is, I think, a really pervasive and really troubling way of thinking. It was like volunteering people who, and then if you sort of went and did, you know, there were some journalists who went and did interviews with um, disabled and elderly persons who were sort of like, how did it become acceptable for people to talk like this? Um, and they were talking like that on network television. Um, and it was Dan Patrick. I just want to get his name in there so we can remember him for history. He deserves to be named and named just, and called out. Yeah. I just Googled a headline. I found a headline in Vanity Fair says, Dan Patrick says old people should volunteer to die for the economy. That's nice. I don't know. I just, it was so interesting, like the ageism overlapping with um, the way that people were talking about disabled people. And and I think that we're sort of, re I, I mean, I'm, the way that I live in Minneapolis um, and I mean, hospitals are getting full. And so people are starting to have conversations about how they're going to choose who's going to get treatment. And I know those conversations are happening in other parts of the country as well. And so I feel like right. that talk, which was part of the beginning of the pandemic, is resurfacing. It absolutely is. And I think it's really important to sort of be explicit about the fact that that these conversations that we're having about like, oh, isn't it so horrible that 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 people, um, you know, think this way and would go to the extreme of saying like, grandparents should sacrifice, old people should sacrifice themselves for young people and should die. Like that is the sort of like most extreme verbalized extension of this rhetoric, but the rhetoric of like what constitutes a valuable life. And if we have to make decisions about limited resources and limited care, that has real lived mortal consequences for, especially for people with, with disabilities. Um, and, you know, and, and we've already seen a report or two of, you know, hospitals, saying something like there was a, and I'm, I'm, I'm hating that now I can't remember the specifics, but there was a man who was a, a quadriplegic, um, who, who ended up with COVID and, and needed a, needed a ventilator. And the, the hospital essentially said like, we don't think this is a good use of our, our, our resources. 
Right. And it, yeah. it just becomes a, you know, that's a really, that's a really present and troubling thing going happening right now in this, in this country. Well, the occasion of this episode, one of the things that we're marking is the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we're going to have some questions about that later on in the interview. But I just wanted to, you know, I wondered if, you know, you thought, uh, look, Trump lost, fortunately, but I, 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 you know, I can't imagine that that's a, you know, Dan Patrick's a Republican and, and Trump's attitude toward COVID and the way that he's thought about aging populations during COVID, the way that he made fun of that uh, reporter um, that has been become famous, right? I wonder if he'd stayed in office, like how long he would have put up with that act in the first place. Would he eventually have like tried to get rid of it? Like he's tried to get rid of so many other protections for marginalized groups. You know, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I mean, obviously, the you know, I was born in 1991, um, which is the year after the Americans with Disabilities Act um, came into came into law and um, was written into law. And so I am I am the ADA generation and I feel acutely aware of um, the ways in which the particular shape of my life, um, my education, the opportunities that I have been afforded um, are a direct consequence of that piece of legislation. Um, and so I don't I, I say none of what I'm about to say. Uh, to to seem ungrateful for the activism and the labor that that put that law um, on the books, um, the the um, many many people who fight to make sure that its protections are um, are uh, abided by and enacted today. Um, but it's also like a hilariously uh, insufficient piece of legislation at this point in time, right? And I think that it's less likely maybe that he would have have uh sort of you know said something explicit like i'm gonna i'm gonna you know overturn the ada and i think it's much more likely that we would see as we have seen um in the sort of debate around healthcare in this country and as we've seen um in honestly in the republican party in general um a kind of insidious gutting of all of the the teeth in that uh that piece of legislation and that law which frankly does not does not have enough teeth as it is and i think that um, you know, the thing we have seen in Trump's presidency is it becoming um, more acceptable to say explicitly so many of the terrible things um, about who is a valuable person, what constitutes a valuable life, what's a valuable way of being that I think have, have unfortunately underpinned um, our society for, for far too long. You know, Trump is a, is a kind of exaggeration of and certainly a a terrible, terrible um, feature of an extension of of a lot of, of bigotry and and difficulty and racism and all kinds of other things in in American life. But he's not the this this beginning or the end of the problem, right? Right. And so, kind of going back um, again to the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble Minded, um, one of those earlier institutions. You know, you have an essay in your book with that same title. And it, it talks about your walking through the institution and it also describes the process and production of your poetry collection. So how do you see your prose capturing something different from your poetry? So it's really interesting. You know, I've always said that, um, you know, I was, I was a poet first. I've wanted to be a poet since I was a very young child. Um, and I, and poetry sort of always felt like my first language. And I, I came to nonfiction, um, later and I came to it sort of like backwards and accidentally and, and reluctantly. And I came to it really, I'll say, because I, um, you know, have always been a voracious reader. I've always been someone who found um, their their company and their consolation in, in literature. Um, and so when I was an adolescent um, and sort of coming into my, my teenage years and my adulthood um, as a person with a disability, I, I wanted to go to books for company, right? I wanted to go to books to see myself and to hear people writing about the um, the experiences that I was having and to see bodies like mine um, and lives like mine reflected. And I mostly couldn't find them um, is the thing. And so I really think I, I began writing nonfiction out of that, um, you know, that thing that people say, which is that if you can't, if you can't find the book you want to read, you want to write it, you know? And so I, I figured, okay, this is the way um, this is a way to, to maybe make some small measure of change and to ensure that, you know, some young woman coming up behind me is going to have the chance to be accompanied um, in the way that I have not been and am not feeling at this moment in time. And I think both poetry and prose can do that. Um, but writing explicit nonfiction um, and explicit memoir that is clear about its, its um, grounding in fact, clear about its um, 
reflection of the 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 truths and difficulties of of my own life even when they feel embarrassing or intimate or or painful or complicated um i think there's something especially powerful in that i've always said that writing a poem feels to me kind of like an act of world making you decide the laws of gravity and the things that the things that um that sort of animate that the universe of that poem and and Writing an essay feels more to me like walking around in the, the world that already exists um, and trying to map it and make sense of it. Um, and for me, that's a world, right, in which that is often not welcoming to my body, in which I often do not see um, myself or others like me reflected. And, and so I think there is there is something that prose can do um, uh, in that in that mapping and in that making sense. Molly, we wondered if you could read to us a little bit from that particular essay. Sure. So this is an essay um, from kind of dead smack in the center um, of my essay collection, Places I Take in My Body. Um, and it's called The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, which is also the title of my poetry collection. And it sort of narrates and traces um, how I came to, to write that poetry collection and also how I came to think about um, my own relationship to the history of disability and to internalized ableism. Um, and all of those things. And so I'll start in the middle of the essay. I remember hearing about the doctor who told my parents when I was born in 1991 that I would probably never live independently, might never even speak. I felt time and space collapse. 65 years ago, born in my hometown, I might have lived and died in the colony, been buried in that field. I went home that day and Googled the training center under its old name. I read a little about Carrie Buck, the colony inmate who'd been named plaintiff in Buck v. Bell, the 1927 Supreme Court case that upheld Virginia sterilization laws and made eugenic sterilization legal throughout the United States. Forced to undergo compulsory sterilization after she was committed to the colony while pregnant, Carrie was the perfect subject for testing the legal sturdiness of new sterilization statutes. She was declared the feeble-minded daughter of a feeble-minded mother, the first of three children with three different fathers. She and her family were the ideal lineage for eugenicists to cite when arguing that defectives would overrun the population with their mental, physical, and moral flaws if they weren't kept forcibly and permanently in check. When in an 8-1 decision, the Supreme Court ruled it was in the state's interest to sterilize her, they legitimized the thousands and thousands of sterilizations that would follow at the colony and all over the country. And they underwrote the eugenicist philosophy on which Hitler would later base his law for the prevention of genetically diseased offspring. When Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., then an associate justice, delivered the court's famous ruling, he wrote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Almost 20 years later, Nazi doctors at the Nuremberg trials would cite that language as a defense. The colony's history was a record of violence and discrimination that would radiate outwards beyond national boundaries for generations to come. It reverberated quietly inside my own life. As seminal a case as Buck v. Bell was, there's remarkably little information from the years in the 1930s and 1940s at the height of the colony's sterilization practices. Patient accounts are especially few and far between. In a regional newspaper story from the early 1990s, a Virginia reporter describes tracking down a former colony patient who was released as a young woman and then spent her entire adult life trying to have children. Essentially, the reporter had to sit at the woman's kitchen table, look at her in her wheelchair and tell her her own story. This is what was done to you. This is the great shroud over your life and you didn't even know about it. Reading it, I wondered how the woman's face had altered then if shock or grief or anger had bloomed first. I wondered if there was some relief in having even an awful explanation. There's a list of operations in my own life that help make me who I am, but I have a record of every time a surgeon cut me open, the names of things the doctors declared wrong with me, the parts of me they've altered. I've lived my whole life with these catalogs. What would it be like to lack them? or to have a stranger arrive one day at the home I'd made bearing all that knowledge. The virtual absence of patient accounts of colony life during the eugenics movement is undoubtedly the result of a variety of forces. The lack of information inmates were given about their own histories and medical records, the pervasive sense that these defective people couldn't possibly have a meaningful perspective and experience worth attending to a complex and fully realized inner life. 
And the amount of shame that surrounded being a former colony resident, even after inmates were released. All these things collided to produce a history characterized as much by absence and silence as anything else. Seeing the old pieces of the colony still standing there on the soil where I was raised in the mountains I always recognized and claimed even when the landscape of my own body felt foreign, tugged at me continually after my first visit to the grounds, but I wasn't ready to write about it immediately after passing through the gates. It would take me a few years to figure out how, and though I didn't know it then, it would require reckoning not just with my proximity to the colony and its history, but with the considerable space that shame and silence occupied in my own life. Thank you. That's really just a great essay. It details how your poems express the untold collective history of the Virginia State Colony. And, and as you say, that history could have been your own if the timing had been different. And as Whit mentioned earlier, it's the 30th anniversary of the ADA. What do you think the untold histories of our time? I feel like so much of the work of creative writing is kind of going back into these gaps in history and finding the things that aren't talked about. Um, So what will be today's stories when it comes to Americans with disabilities? Oh, Lord. I mean, I don't, that feels like an, that feels like an impossible question to answer um, in some ways in the, in the present tense. I mean, I can tell you that there are an enormous number of writers um, doing work that I incredibly, that I admire incredibly. Um, And I think, but I think that the, you know, the stories that we need most, um, especially from this, this moment and from this pandemic are are exactly the kinds of stories that we've been talking about, the stories of people who, um, you know, found themselves not able to get the medical care they needed because they didn't have the the insurance um, that they deserved or because a doctor or an institution um, deemed their life less valuable and less worth saving. Um, I think that we need to be aware um, that identity is intersectional. And so um, the stories that we need are gonna be of, of disabled people who, um, are, are also queer people or are also people of color um, or are also um, in um, you know, impoverished communities, people who are facing um, the kind of intersection of, of varying parts of their, their identities um, and trying to figure out what it means to, to live in their bodies in this moment when the, when the world is again busy telling us that, um, you know, that, our, that our bodies might be less valuable. Um, I think, and I think that some of, some of what we most need to know um, the problem and the thing that makes the thing that makes art so important is that we don't we don't yet know that it's the, the thing we most need to know, right? Um, and so there are people out there doing quiet work um, that I think you know five and ten and fifteen and twenty and thirty and forty and fifty years down the line, um, those are going to be the narratives that people look back at. I wonder how people who had COVID are going to be thought of in the future if they will be if like having had the virus will be thought of as a disability. Um, or how the people will be thought about. I mean, you know, because we're talking about changing that definition, if that's true, by millions of people, given how the pandemic is going right now. Yeah. I mean, I do think, I think, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think one of the things that we're encountering, right, is how little we know um, about the, what the long-term effects of the virus are going to be, um, even on people who, you know, appear to have had very mild cases with little or no, or no symptoms. We're starting to see some evidence that, you know, there may in fact be, um, really long-term biological consequences, um, to having the virus. And I think, you know, that, um, and I think for a variety of reasons, this this pandemic, um, even in the way that people have sort of had to lean on digital solutions and think about sort of ways to connect across distance, um, is already changing the way that we talk about access um, and talk about about um, chronic illness. And I think there's a really good chance that you know we may, and I and I hope this is not the case because of course the last thing I want is for you know a huge a huge um, percentage of our population to end up with with long-term, you know, painful and uncertain health consequences. But I, I do think, you know, um, the the percentage of Americans with a disability is already quite high. Um, and I think, I think if it gets, if it gets higher as a result of, of, um, you know, people who end up chronically ill, not just, not just acutely and temporarily ill as a result of this virus, I think we are going to see a, a change in, a change in conversation. But I also think it's complicated because that's also what makes disability, I think, such a difficult and often frightening and painful thing for able-bodied people to talk about. It's, it's one of the, you know, it's, it's one of the few sort of bodily states where you can 
not belong to it and not belong to it and not belong to that group and not belong to that minority. And then one day you can get sick or get hit by a bus or age um, or, and, and all of a sudden you can wake up and, and, and you are a disabled person. And I think it requires people to confront the fragility in their own bodies and lives in ways that is troubling. And I think that that is something the pandemic is, is asking all of us to, to do. And I hope that there will be, you know, positive effects um, because of that, even, even if it's coming out of this, this deeply painful circumstance. So Molly, you bring up intersectionality and, and a large part of your work seems to interrogate the intersection of feminism and disability. And women are so often overlooked and mistreated by medical professionals, especially women on the margins. You describe a chorus of ghosts towards the end of the essay from which you read, um, I'm quoting the line here, the imagined voices of the women in the colony. Could you talk about the meaning and potential power of, of those imagined voices and what you think we should be learning from them today? Yeah, so I think um, there are a couple of things to say here. One of which, right, is that I don't, um, I don't believe for a second um, that the that my collection of poems um, can or should stand in for the actual lived experiences of people who were colony inmates. Um, there's no, there's no way that the the book is a sort of perfect corrective to the fact that we should actually, we should have those people's voices and those, those people's stories. And it's a, it's a problem that we don't. Um, but what I do hope is that the book um, can and will continue to draw attention to the devastating fact of their absence, right? Um, and provide a kind of emotional imagination um, of what it, it might have been like to be um, a colony inmate during this time, and particularly a, a female colony inmate during this time. You know, I think that one of the one of the reasons I love being a writer, and one of the reasons I love being a writer who who works, um, you know, sometimes in poetry or and nonfiction and in um, kind of across genres, is that I'm able to make um, empathetic leaps of imagination that you can't make in in journalism um, or in, or in science or in politics. Um, and I think that that's so often um, in order to to really understand the, the factual truth of something, um, we need to be connected to the emotional truth of it. And that is, I think, a thing that that literature is is able to do. It's one of the things I think, um, particularly in this moment when um, we're suddenly we've suddenly become a country who's who's deeply suspicious of of facts and of science um, and uh, and of, of so many things that we do, in fact, know for certain that the ability to um, to make something uh, not only sort of informationally true for someone, but to make it feel true and feel immediate, um, I think is really important. Um, and I, I think one of the things I hope the book does is it makes it clear that, um, you know, the, the, the mass sterilization of people, um, in this country, I should say that even though we don't have eugenic institutions in that way anymore, um, forced sterilization is still going on in this country, right? It's happening in our prison industrial complex. Um, it's happening in all kinds of ways. And I hope that one of the things the book does is makes clear that um, these were not sort of atrocities perpetrated by monstrous strangers who bear no resemblance to us or to people that are alive today. Um, and this is not something that we can sort of comfortably position um, behind a, a, a sort of a curtain um, of, of learning or across a vast fissure of time. Um, this is yesterday in our world and it's now. Um, and the people who, who did this were motivated by fears and bigotries and misunderstandings that are still deeply, deeply present today. And that's, that's the thing I hope that the book can make clear. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. And we're gonna remind our listeners to pick up your recent collection of essays, Places I've Taken My Body, along with your poetry collection, The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble Mind. Next up, we're joined by Rebecca Tossig, Kansas City writer, teacher, and author of the new book, Sitting Pretty, A View from My Ordinary Resilient Disabled Body, out from Harper One. Rebecca earned an MA from UMKC, where I teach, and a PhD in Creative Writing and Disability Studies from the University of Kansas. She has led workshops and presentations at the University of Michigan, the University of Kansas, and Davidson College on disability representation, identity, and community. She also runs the Instagram platform, at sitting underscore pretty, where she crafts mini memoirs to contribute nuance to the collective narratives being told about disability in our culture. 
Her essays appear in Ash Magazine, Good Company, and have won the Creative Nonfiction Editor's Award from the Florida Review. Rebecca, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you with us. In your book's preface, you write that social media has the power to destroy, but simultaneously offers, I'm quoting here, at least one tremendous gift, the power to share a story without going through the gatekeepers who've historically said, pass, we don't tell those kinds of stories, who would listen? Can you talk a little bit about those gatekeepers and how social media has disrupted them and their patterns? Absolutely. Yeah. When we think about the publishing world and not just the publishing world, not just literature, but when we think even about like studios and and, um, producers and all of the people in charge of what stories are coming into the world and being distributed um, on a wide scale. I'm thinking about all of the people in those rooms and in, in those meetings and the people making those decisions by and large those people are um, disproportionately not disabled people. Like we can look at the numbers specifically and see that the proportions don't match up, right? Um, I think uh, it was maybe 2015, so these numbers might be a little bit dated, but there was a survey that went out in the publishing world to um, assess kind of diversity of the people staffed there. And that that study found 92% of, of the people in the publishing staff positions um, were non-disabled people. But in the U.S., uh, it's largely estimated to be like around one in five people having some kind of disability. Um, So those numbers don't match at all. And so you think about the impact of that um, in terms of what stories um, are getting more attention or are sought out and which ones kind of maybe aren't seen as needed or whether or not they're doing an audience for them. And so I think of, of like uh, Me Before You, which actually turned out to be a really big film in 2016 as well, is just overwhelmed with horrible tropes with disability. And I think about like whose desk that arrived on, you know, like who looked at that and didn't see the 10 giant red flags on that manuscript. Um, and I think that that is easy to happen when you when you have kind of this tilt or lean in, towards one perspective over the other and you don't have kind of other voices in there, other perspectives to catch that. I think one of the beautiful things that I've seen happen online is disabled people being able to see each other and recognize that they're not alone. I think when you grow up with a disability um, or you have uh, you become disabled, a lot of times it's easy to think that you are really the only person in that boat or one of the very few people in that in that world. And part of that is reinforced by the stories we have around us that don't represent that experience. But suddenly online, people were able to see each other and hear each other and see each other's stories in each other. Um, I, I know that like Erin Clark was one of the first people I found online with a disability and the things that she wrote about her experience in her body, it was like, I didn't even know words like this could be written. Like, I didn't know that this was a story that anyone could tell or that anyone would care about. So I think seeing each other in that space was really important. And then I think that this other thing happened at the same time, or maybe just a little bit behind, a little bit of a lag, was that industry started to recognize that there really is a vibrant disabled community that um, translates into an audience or a consumer, you know? So we have publishing industries, film industries, but also fashion um, industries and advertising agencies recognizing like, oh, there's a whole population here that maybe wouldn't have been seen as a demographic worth keeping in mind as much in the past. And I think the momentum of that community building online um, has been really transformative. Like we're watching that transform things in real time right now. So uh, in a way that I think is really exciting. I mean, that's had an effect on on your career. We're going to, we'll put this in our show notes, but you're on this bustle has a list of 10 body positive Instagrammers with disabilities you should immediately follow. That's you're on there. So I'm, I immediately have followed you, but that was already because I knew you. <laughs> Uh, but, you you know, speaking of the tropes in literature and film that you're talking about, you know, you think of films like, I mean, a very old piece of media that's also been filmed, The Hunchback of Notre Dame or Forrest Gump character or, you know, in the, in the movie My Left Foot, Daniel Day-Lewis acts as someone with cerebral palsy, um, even though he doesn't have cerebral palsy. I, I feel like it's sort of really rare and people are still debating this. I mean, there's a debate going on with Sia right now in a movie that she's making whether or not these characters should be played by people who have the disability that's being portrayed, you know, how far to, and, and there's also, you talk about representation. So we, you know, how far do we have to go to get sort of what you would consider to be 
equal representation for peoples with disabilities in media? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things happening simultaneously right now. Like on the one hand, I think we do still see these glaring tropes showing up all over the place. Um, I think that that's not, that's not going away easily or anytime soon. I'm thinking like even films that I really love, like um, The Shape of Water that came out a couple of years ago, or even Get Out, which is a gorgeous, important film, have some of these disability tropes kind of tucked into them um, in a way that doesn't even always get a lot of attention afterwards. Can you give an example of some of those tropes? Yes, absolutely. So like in Get Out, we, we have a blind uh, villain who essentially um, will do anything within his power, even commit atrocious acts of violence to reverse his disability or get his eyesight back. And that's a really common trope that you have. Um, That's also like the Pikachu movie that came out with Bill Nye as the villain. That's the same thing, right? You have like the disabled supervillain who's going to destroy the world in order to get his body back, which is not so unlike the trope that you see in The Shape of Water, um, where you have the protagonist who is mute. She doesn't speak. And um, there's this trope, this fantasy sequence where she, there's a whole scene where she acts out um, and she sings and she performs using her voice, right? And so that's a really common trope. You see that, um, that's like a trope that showed up in Glee. That was a trope that showed up in the theory of everything, where you see the disabled character kind of have this little flash of a moment where they get to fantasize what it's like when their body's returned to, you know, it's abled, normal um, state. That's so interesting. I do think the tropes you're talking about are less thought about, to be perfectly honest, by ableist writers. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that that just, I think what that shows us is ableism is really pervasive and, and you don't have to be, I mean, it can show up anywhere. You can be a disabled person and still write a dis, like a, an ableist trope, you know, it's really prevalent, but I don't want to overlook the things that are happening to move us in a different direction. I think like I look at the show special. I don't know if you all have heard of special. Um, it was written by Ryan O'Connell as a memoir originally. And then Ryan um, wrote the screenplay and actually performed in the show on a Netflix um, series called Special. And it's it's just his story of being a man with cerebral palsy and gay and and kind of coming to terms with his own identities and exploring his sexuality as a disabled man. And it's a beautiful, brilliant, charming, funny show on Netflix that has, I think, gotten some good attention and people are watching it and enjoying it. So like that show, you know, the fact that that exists is very exciting. It's something new. It's a move in a different direction, I think. So I think both of those things are kind of happening at the same time. And obviously my idealism is going to say, I think we're moving towards, you know, better, more complicated, interesting representation and away from some of these old stories. I, I hope that that's where we're going. I think it seems like the better route for lots of reasons. It's funny when you were talking about this, I'm just thinking back to, you know, the sorts of guy like, I grew up in the 1980s and spent all this time watching terrible 1980s films. And when I go back and revisit them, like they're so frequently racist. There's always like a homophobic subplot. I'm like adventures in babysitting. Who remembered that you had a homophobic subplot? But totally. you do. Yes. Um, you know, or Goonies, which is like actually rife with ableism. Completely. As a kid, I would never have like noticed or thought about it. And, you know, I don't know, Disney also. But then also like as you were talking about this, the the range of things that are disabilities is so large. It seems like also people are often using race and gender as like proxies for how they could think about disability, but it doesn't seem like it would work. Um, Do you know what I mean? Like they're trying to sort of make analogies for, oh, I'm trying to be um, more sensitive about racism, more sensitive about sexism, more sensitive about homophobia. But like there's, I mean, for example, there's, you know, I feel like now I know the term neurodivergent. I'm trying to think of like, when did I learn that term? How old was I? Probably pretty old. That term, like all the language is so, there's such a large range of vocabulary that we don't no. How do you think that people who are working on this should go about doing it? Yes, I think that's a really good point. And in the sense that um, I think what you're saying is that looking at some of these like other identities, maybe the pool of terms that we need to understand would be smaller. And once we expand to disability, we're not just talking about wheelchairs and we're not just talking about vision impairments. We're also talking about like all of these different ways that disability can be embodied. 
Yeah. And I think like, I mean, in some ways, like racism actually maybe is a good proxy because for example, people lob around the term Asian American. The term Asian American is hugely, you know, it's a problematic term. It has like such a range of identities underneath it. It's the creation of a, like a certain moment and it's inadequate for many things also. The complexities of those different identities, the subcultures, um, and their vocabularies, like the, the conversations that like there's a, what there's a Twitter feed that's like ableist. It's um it's like an it's a handle that teaches you sort of non-ableist language. I'm trying to remember what it is. And I tried following it to like and to watch people argue about the kinds of language they want to be called, what they want to use. Yeah. In the, in the disability world, I, I know that, I mean, like language, there's not an agreed upon set of words that you're supposed to use or not use. I mean, that everybody has different ideas about that for sure. I wonder if we're moving to a place where, and I think disability plays a big part of this, but I think it's also kind of what you were just saying in conversations about race as well, where we're no longer able to just memorize the rules and like memorize what to say and what not to say and um, what you're supposed to know and kind of get that down. And I think, I wonder if we're moving to a place where we have to kind of grow thicker skin or a tolerance for being wrong and moving through the discomfort and still finding a way to understand each other. When I, in the beginning of my book, I talk about how I am only like one disabled person writing one book and how I can't do anything more than that. I think even meeting another person who has a very similar life to me and body to me, I don't know that there's a way that I could educate somebody perfectly on how to treat me and have that translate on how to treat every other wheelchair user, let alone every other embodiment of disability, I guess. So I wonder if, if, what we can be learning through that is just more practice being in some of those uncomfortable positions where we don't know what to say and learning how to ask what to say or being open and curious and, and able to receive instruction from people when we don't know. And it's such an uncomfortable place to be in. Um, whoever wants to arrive in a room or a space or to an interview in that position, we want to know before we get there. But I think it is becoming increasingly important. I'm feeling it increasingly important to be able to to go in and learn as we go. One of the news pegs that we have for this episode, because we're a news and literature podcast, and we're talking about disability and writing, but is the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we just talked with Molly McCauley-Brown a little bit about that. I wondered, you know, that act, so it's 30 years old, as I just said, right? The movies that we're talking about, Forrest Gump, you know, were right around sort of that, what, 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 so it was 1990. So Forrest Gump was probably, I can't remember, was it before 1980 or after 1980? Was it a 1980s movie or was it? Oh, was I think it, it was after. Movie? I think it was the 90s. I think it was after. Yeah. I think it was yeah. the 90s. Okay, so yeah. these tropes and their use in movies didn't immediately go away upon the passage of this act, right? I mean, this act had a lot of changed physical things in the world, but they didn't change though necessarily the way people think. But I wonder what role you think that that act has played in this ongoing conversation or improvement of the way that people uh, if there is an improvement in the way people have been discussing this issue of of how people with disabilities are represented in the media? That's a really good question. And it's come up a lot this year, you know, the ADA. What did it, what has it done and what is left to do? And I think ultimately the ADA, it's like two things at the same time. It is this amazing, magical, amazing piece of legislation that changed everything and also left so much left. You know, there's so much left that needs to change. The fact that it exists at all is amazing. And also there, it, there's so much that's left untouched by it. In particular, I think just culturally, I don't know that the ADA did very much at all. I don't know that it did very much at all to change um, attitudes or understandings. I think that it literally allowed disabled people to be in classrooms and in buildings. And, and in that sense, I guess you're actually seeing a few more disabled people in the world around you, and that's not small at all. Um, but in, in terms of people taking the ADA to understand that disabled people should be included and we're lucky to have them be included, right? Like that this is like a valuable group of people that should be here. I don't know that that translated through the, that piece of legislation. Um, I know for me... I have literally had conversations with people grumbling about the ADA to me, which is very strange because I think of all the people that you would feel uncomfortable grumbling about the ADA to, ADA to the person who obviously needs it to get into your building and be one of them. But there's 
a pretty deep-seated resistance to the ADA still. A couple of years ago, I think it was 2017, there was a new piece of legislation that almost passed to kind of undo some of the work that the ADA had done, and it got through... Uh, the Senate, I think. So, I mean, like, that is pretty clear evidence that culturally, there's a lot of work we have left to do to understand the point of what the ADA is even there for. I think what has done a lot more in terms of shifting um, our cultural understanding, I mean, obviously, I'm biased, but I do think that what we see in literature and in film and in social media with people kind of telling their own stories, I think that's the most powerful thing to changing our cultural understanding of disability and by extension, our built spaces and our legislation and the actual lives of real people. So you're talking about all of the ways that the ADA hasn't done enough. And and I think, yeah, people don't seem to understand really what um, disability and accessibility mean. And able-bodied people haven't had to say no to affordable apartments without elevators as you have, and they haven't experienced the discouragement you felt in realizing that all the accessible apartments in Kansas City come with spectacular price tags. The incidents that I'm mentioning come from the chapter in your book called What I Mean When I Talk About Accessibility, in which you move out of the house you share with your best friend when she gets married. I wonder if you could read a little bit to us from that section. Yes, yes, I would love to. Um, So yeah, this section is um, just in the middle of the chapter, and and a big part of that chapter is trying to find an accessible place to live and kind of bringing the reader through what that actually ends up being like. Um, And as a disabled person, I knew it would be hard, but honestly, the, the real life experience kind of took me off guard. So just starting kind of in the middle of this chapter, I pinpointed my parameters. It had to be affordable on a graduate student budget. Can we even call it a budget when the paychecks are that small? And I had to be able to get in and out of it. If I could move around the space without enormous barriers, that would be cool. Not the most demanding parameters the viewers of HGTV have ever seen, I imagine. I started asking around to my mom and my sisters, my closest friends and their boyfriends, my boyfriend and my dad. Have you heard of any places? Do you know of anyone moving? Have you seen any for rent signs? They'd send me Craigslist and apartment.com listings and track down leads from friends of friends. Joe and Bertie spent a whole afternoon driving around town visiting places with me. I had a whole network of loving, smart people on the lookout. Something had to materialize soon. We visited affordable apartments with dirty bathrooms and carpets, one accessible unit per building that might be available in a month or two, and no accessible parking. There was the unit that was advertised as accessible but actually had street parking on a steep hill and trash bins located across a street with no curb cuts. After a few months of looking, there seemed to be three basic categories of housing. Places that were affordable but inaccessible with parking, laundry units, and bathrooms I couldn't access and a nice sprinkling of stairs. Or places designated for low-income disabled people with waiting lists in the hundreds I've had my name on three waiting lists for subsidized developments like this in Kansas City, and my name hasn't reached the top of any list in four years. One place actually sends me letters each year asking whether I want to keep my name on the list, and I keep saying yes because by the time I actually make it to the top in 10, 15, who even knows where I'll be or what I'll need? Or places that were brilliantly accessible, with sleek floors, wide doorways, and elevators, spectacularly unaffordable. After several months of scouring the internet, my then-boyfriend Micah and I, we hadn't known each other for even a year yet, decided to drive up and down the streets of Kansas City and all its sprawling pockets, looking for any place that might work. Maybe there'd be a magic unicorn building hiding behind a big tree, we hoped. That night, we drove around, listening to Vampire Weekend's new album and talking about my upcoming French exam. The hours passed as we made our way across the city, but we hadn't spotted one place to look into. Seemingly out of nowhere, Micah started crying. How is it possible that this city doesn't have any place for you to live? Oh, don't worry, it's okay, we'll find some place, I said instinctually. I rubbed my hand in circles against his back, willing the weight of inaccessibility off his shoulders. But it was a burden I couldn't lift. What Micah had believed to be a series of annoying inconveniences 
revealed itself as a reality much gnarlier, more powerful, and consuming. This wasn't a pesky problem to bat away. It was a problem that defines and dictates. As Bertie started to move her stuff out of our house and into her new home with Joe, I had to come to terms with the fact that despite the collaborative efforts of all my people, I still hadn't found a place to live. I secretly wished Micah would ask me to find a house with him. Our combined incomes would allow for more options, but even as I hoped for it, I felt gross for wanting the progress of our relationship to be determined by my housing situation. So that spring, as I bought a bridesmaid's dress for my best friend's wedding, I moved back in with my parents at the age of 29. This was simultaneously a great relief and a profound defeat. On one hand, I was so grateful to have a place to go. This is not the case for many folks, a reality that felt closer, but still hardly fathomable to me. Had I not been caught by this net of support, there are other ways this could have gone. Folks are often forced into homelessness, nursing homes, or subsidized housing far away from all that's familiar to them. They can feel like a burden staying with relatives or friends. Sometimes they stay in horrible relationships because they need shelter. I was keenly aware of this. On the other hand, I was embarrassed and deflated to be moving back home at 29. I was burrowing into my childhood bed each night, staring relentlessly into the glow of late-night Craigslist searches. It didn't help that the only bathroom I could access in the house was in my parents' bedroom. I'd get home late in the evening and sneak into their dark room, listening to my dad's snores and trying not to bang my chair into their antique dresser. Micah would come over to watch Netflix in my childhood bed, and my mom would bring us a bowl of popcorn and a plate of apple slices. Did you forget I was almost 30? Yeah, me neither. The longer I lived there, the more ashamed I felt. I'd drive home from a day of teaching, pull into my parents' driveway, and feel about as capable of taking control of my own life as a tween. Thank you very much. Since we both live in Kansas City, um, as I'm, you know, I'm sure the listeners of this program have tired of me hearing me talk about Kansas City, but they're going to get to hear us talk about Kansas City. I don't get to have a lot of guests on from Kansas City. Um, I am interested in having you talk about the particular challenges that disabled people face in Midwestern cities like this one, which are sort of built around the car, as opposed to denser cities uh, where there might be more tr public transportation or more kinds of public transportation, not to mention more housing options that are accessible and do have elevators. Yeah, you know, I think this is kind of a complicated uh a complicated comparison uh, because I think that there are some ways that um, Midwestern cities are more accessible and, and some ways that they're less accessible. And the same goes for bigger cities. I mean, I think for one thing, it depends on what disability you have. Um, so if you can't drive a car, a city like Kansas City is going to be pretty difficult to get around in and, and to navigate, especially because our we don't have as hardy of a public transportation system. But I know like in New York City, for example, I think maybe there are more housing options, but I, I know that um, like the subway system is notoriously inaccessible, like very difficult and unpredictable even at its best. So I don't know that it's necessarily automatically true that living in a bigger city will automatically make that city more accessible. I think one thing that actually is important to think about is a lot of people who need caregivers might have a larger pool of people to access in a larger city, and that's important. Um, but a lot of it, I think, depends on your city's sort of long-term commitment towards creating accessible options. I think that that could really, that could really vary. Um, I do know that I, when I visited London a couple of summers ago, being able to hop on the red bus, the red buses that they have, I, I've never even had a feeling like that. Like the ease of being able to hop, hop on and off of those red buses and not have to like plan and like scour the internet trying to find a little icon that says whether something's accessible or not. Um, the ease of that was incredible. I think it's a complicated, a complicated thing to try to suss out, you know, in terms of comparing. Um, I think there are different, it depends on your disability and it depends on the particular setup of your city, um, large or small. So 
in Sitting Pretty, you use this very conversational style, which made me feel like I was having a conversation with you as I was reading. So it sort of opens up this space for dialogue between people with disabilities and potentially an able-bodied reader like myself. Did you have that goal in mind as you were developing that style? And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I didn't expect... It's something that a lot of people bring up, and I didn't even really expect that. Um, and I've been kind of surprised to hear people talk about that. Um, I think this is what happened. Over the years, as a writer, I think I've come to understand about myself that my favorite kind of writing is a conversation, is interactive, is kind of um, inviting more conversations, or I'm always wanting to you know, read something and then have a conversation about it. And I think that in the large part, that is what drew me to Instagram as a, as a platform, um, is being able to write little things in that space and have, have that back and forth, have that conversation, um, hear what other stories, my story sparked and and things like that. So I really spent a lot of time honing my voice in that space, in that very interactive space. And I think that that is naturally kind of the, the voice that, um, came into the book, but I think it really did and I don't know how intentional this was or not. In some ways, I think that this is is kind of like the subconscious um, disabled child growing into an adult and like learning how to communicate with non-disabled people in a way that's like non-threatening. I think that it worked out well because a lot of the ideas in the book are um, potentially disruptive or challenging. And I think it's important that the information that I'm trying to share or or have a conversation about isn't a lecture, isn't a critique. It's um, it's a conversation and it's supposed to be an invitation. It's supposed to be something that we can chew on together and think through together, understanding that there's no way that this book is the end of anything, like the definitive statement, like, and there it is, let's be done. You know, like, I am not interested in being that person. I want the writing to be something that generates more that, um, that prompts more conversations. And so, yes, so I guess in that roundabout way, that voice kind of became the voice in the book as well. And I think that it it works. I think that that's kind of the voice that it should be um, for what I'm trying to do. The National Endowment for the Arts did a recent podcast episode with you talking about Sitting Pretty, talking about it as a memoir that grapples with the myth of ableism and how it, quote, revolves around the idea of an idealized, typical body that isn't typical at all, but exists only for the very few and only for a short time since we all age, if we're lucky. Can you talk a little bit more about the myth of ableism and why the able-bodied world seldom thinks about aging? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that is, I don't know, the most amazing to me about ableism is that it's so pervasive, right? I mean, we've kind of been talking about that throughout our conversation. It's, it's everywhere. And there's so many of us that have decided to like, um, pledge allegiance to it. And yet it is so punishing. It is like the payout for it is so small, um, and temporary and, and the punishment is so high and widespread. And so there's something really fascinating to me about our, our buy-in for this system and, and how it perpetuates. But ultimately, you know what? I, wanna, is, I think we should yeah. define ableism for our listeners okay. first, because I don't. I think there will be listeners who don't know what that means. The the traditional definition is discrimination against people with disabilities. That's the kind of the like the common um, definition of it. I don't think that that definition is as comprehensive as it needs to be. I don't think that that is exactly what I see at work in the world around us. And so my definition is more about the way in which we have built our world around a largely imagined body. Um, And this body is endlessly young. It's healthy in every possible category of health, cognitive and physical. It doesn't age. It is thin. It doesn't feel pain. It doesn't need to go to the bathroom. Um, This body is kind of this kind of perfect prototype um, that we have chosen to build our world around. And I mean that in our physical world, our building and our transportations, but also in our social structures. Think about the way that we structure um, a lot of the ways we think about work, um, the way we structure school. Um, But I also mean that in terms of like what we allow ourselves to imagine for our stories. I think about the ways that we perpetuate that body as the center of so many of our stories. And you think about like how many of our stories, even if you just think about the age demographic 
of how who is normally at the center of all of our stories. Um, we like how many stories feature older people as the center of the story. You know, it's almost like we've decided that we don't live in interesting lives once we reach a certain age um, or something. Ultimately, that is my definition of ableism. It's it's a system that that features and centers around that body, that imagined um, kind of default body that very few of us actually represent. Um, and even if we do represent or fit into that category for a moment, it's gone the next. And a lot of times we end up living in fear of falling out of that category and reaping the punishments of falling out of that category. So yeah, that's my working definition of ableism. And now I'm trying to think of what your your question was. Well, we oh, were talking uh, about the myth of ableism and how that operates. Um, and I interrupted you to make you do that. I apologize, but please <laughs> well, go ahead. I think that one of the things that's interesting about your question, because you're asking about like aging and why we like seldom think about aging. And I think that's a really interesting piece of it because we all age. So like, why, what is this like refusal to um, engage with this inevitable part of life? And I, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think one of them is that um, it's only in relatively recent history that we've been living as long as we have been. Um, that like a lot of time, for much of history, people were dying younger and their bodies maybe didn't get to, we didn't have as large of a population living in bodies that were complicated. Um, and that goes, I mean, that's true. I mean, I think even like for me, I, I wouldn't have survived. A lot of disabled people I know wouldn't have survived in years past. And so in a lot of ways, we're getting to a place where the populations that live in bodies that deviate further from that idealized vision, um, that population is growing bigger as our as we live longer and as medicine keeps us alive in complicated bodies longer. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, I think also we have kind of set up our world in the States in particular, in a way that kind of um, siphons off and, and keeps aging bodies separate from us. We tend to have people that go live in homes. And we, we've done this with disabled people in a lot of ways, too. Um, disabled people are often um, kept out of some of those hubs, those public spaces that the rest of people occupy. So I think there's a way in which we've kind of arranged it so that we can kind of pretend like we don't age. We don't have to see it and we don't have to engage it if we don't want to. And it's not in our stories unless you watch The Golden Girls. Um, and, and that's why you should watch The Golden Girls. because That's what makes it really interesting is like who's telling these stories. So I think we've kind of set it up so that we can ignore it. But again, I think that's just such a punishing, punishing it's just set up for all of us because um, why not create a, a, a pathway to, to enter into aging and have that not be like this devastating defeat, but just another act in the story. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. We want to encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Sitting Pretty and check you out on Instagram at sitting underscore pretty. Thank you so much. See you later. That was really fun. Thanks. Take care, everybody. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Andrea Tudho. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. And we want to thank our University of Missouri-Kansas City interns, Mary Hinn and Emily Stanley for their work on this episode. We also want to give a special thanks to Kansas City's indie bookstore, Wise Blood. Thank you, Dylan and Peter, for your quick assistance with books this week. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. And please, go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We also love it when listeners post about the show on social media. Tag us and we'll respond. You can listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading! Happy reading!